There you go. Figured out how to work it. Good morning, everyone. How are you on this beautiful yet wet Sunday? My wife reminded me that every time she's come and joined me here, right? Last last time I was with you was I was flying solo. We had some sickness in the house, uh, but every time she comes, the rain comes. So um, I don't know if it's her or me. Is this for me? This one. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. I'll need that. Um, so I'm really excited. We're excited to be here with you today. I have all the kids in tow, all four of them. So we filled up your front row. In addition, my in-laws have joined us, uh, Walter and Pat Morris, coming from Harrisonburg, Virginia. Um, so please get a chance to meet them, shake their hand. We love them and appreciate them, and they have been a blessing to our family. Um, so we're glad to have them with us this morning, as well as I'm here with Justin. So first time that I'm here at the same time that Justin is, he's taking a break. With the newborn in the house, that's not really a break, is it? Uh, you got a lot of work on your plate, so uh, I appreciate that and understand that, so I'm really, really, really grateful to be here this morning with you. Um, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. It's where we're going to be um, this morning. Church discipline, that is a loaded phrase, is it not? As I look to tackle this text and I think about that, that, has, that comes with a lot of baggage at times. Matter of fact, if you take the time to open your browser and put in, type in the words church discipline, it won't take long down the list of search results to see church discipline gone bad, uh, church abuses, accusations of uh, authoritative use of power, lording over leadership, abusing members, and complaints about how things are handled. But these cases in which they're talking about, though many of them not done well, not necessarily biblically, not graciously, not lovingly, not kindly, um, and some just accusations of people who are angry at the church as a whole. We've got to take it with a grain of salt. We don't know those conditions, but they usually are referring to, and we usually think of, do we not, when we think of church discipline, of really what is the most elevated and escalated position and condition situation of church discipline. It's not what church discipline is as a whole. Church discipline largely is, is an informal regular life, the heartbeat of the church. It's something that happens uh, between friends, between uh, brother and sister, a brother and brother, sister and sister within the body of Christ, uh, where we love one another well enough to be able to come to each other as throughout Scripture we're encouraged to do and all of the one another's, edify, build up, convict, challenge, encourage. All of these things fall under the realm of church discipline. And as a body, as a unity, as an organization, if we look at the church as an organization, we're not unique in this. Worldly organizations have discipline, do they not? You're not going to get on a sports team for very long and not train yourself. You're not going to stay there and not train yourself for the game and prepare yourself. And you're not going to stay on the team very long if you can't meet the requirements of what's happening on the field. Now, that analogy falls apart. I'm not trying to say the church is like an NFL team. But at the same time, we recognize that there are expectations within organizations and clubs and memberships around the world. And, and, and the reason being is because those groups and associations have a standard of what life looks like within their group. And we don't set the standard for what the church has as expectations. So don't, we don't come into this group and say, this is what it looks like to be a part of the body, but we have a God who's saved us into this group, into this church, into this body, who sets the standard. And let me tell you, this is really more of an internal family discussion. This is for the body of believers. So if you're here today, you're visiting, welcome. We're excited to have you here. Um, I, I'm, I'm guest speaking, and I'm talking on a tough internal topic. But at the same time, it's a, it's a really great time to be here because hopefully what you'll hear is that the church is a place where we hold high the holiness of God. We are convicted deeply of the dangers of sin and that we love each other well enough to encourage and build up and walk together as we seek to obey and follow Christ. And, and I hope you hear that, and I hope you see that in your relationships. I hope you see that within the church. I hope you see that day in and day out in this body, which I am encouraged by even my brief interactions from time to time, we can we have to see the way that you love each other and care for each other 
within this body of believers because that's what God has laid out for us. See, church discipline, what I find in the text of Scripture, we're going to use Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20 as a backdrop, focusing a lot on 15 through 17. But as a context for what we're talking about, so topical that I'm going to be, that's really the backdrop, and we're going to be throughout Scripture because what I see evidenced throughout the text is that church discipline is for the promotion of healthy growth and unity of the local gathering of God's people for the praise of God's glory. That's the premise I see in Scripture, that church discipline is for the promotion of healthy growth and unity of the local gathering of God's people for the praise of God's glory. See, even in the text of Scripture, Paul regularly references and talks about the life of a believer in athletic terms. He does. He talks about the fact that uh, um, in Hebrews 12, 1-2, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus. He talks about enduring, racing, disciplining his body for the purpose of glorifying our King. And I found in the text, I'm going to read through verses 18, uh, verses uh, 15 through 20. I'm going to read these verses, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about five elements of the practice of church discipline that I see from Scripture. If you would, read with me, and I'm going to pray because as we enter into this topic, we're going to need the Holy Spirit as our guide. So, let's read. Starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray, pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for the privilege it is to open up your word and to worship together as we study your scripture. And God, this, um, this topic of church discipline is one uh, that, Lord, we need to hold tight to and understand that within Scripture there is a way we can approach your throne as a body of believers that encourages one another, loves one another, yet holds one another to conviction so that we might be more and more like Christ. God, I pray that as we walk through this text, your Spirit would guide us, you would teach us, instruct us, and would fill our hearts so that we walk out of here more like Jesus than we did when we came in. And we ask this all in your Son's name. Amen. So there are five, five elements that I'm seeing in Scripture that I want to bring before you about the practice of church discipline. And the first one is this. Church discipline is for the people of God's family. It's for the people of God's family. See, church discipline is not applied um, broadly to believers and unbelievers alike. It's not intended for that. Because from the very, very beginning, Jesus, uh, got, God has been doing the work of bringing together and setting apart a people for himself. Jesus sets the context for this in verse 15 when he first says, if your brother sins against you. He's talking to believers and he says, if your brother, ladies, if your sister, if, if someone in God's family sins against you, this is what I encourage you to do. And it's been God's work from creation where he put Adam and Eve in the garden to steward creation and to cultivate it and to bless it. The very first command he gave Adam and Eve in the garden after creating them in his image was in Genesis 1.28. He blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creation that crawls on the earth. People were set here in God's name as his representative to fill the earth a people for his glory. His creation was here for us to subdue, to gather together, to be fruitful, to bless, to cultivate it. And after man fell in sin, God's purpose didn't change. It didn't change at all. Because God promised, the scripture we hold is a story of God redeeming his people, setting them apart for the glory of his name. 
The plan of redemption set in motion immediately after the fall. God promised in Genesis 3.15 that the descendant of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, Satan. He said, yes, you've sinned, yes, you've fallen, yes, you've gone away from me, but my plan hasn't changed. I will redeem you from the sin which you're into and bring together a people. And in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, he then specifically goes to Abraham. He calls Abraham out of his land and calls him to go out and become a, set up a people to grow and be blessed. Genesis 1, uh, 12, 1 through 3, go out from your land, your relatives, your father's house, the land that I'll show you, and I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And the people on the earth will be blessed through you. Again, God setting up a people, bringing Abraham from where he is, sending him to a faraway place to bless him and multiply him into a nation that the earth would be blessed through. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. Again, God says, For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. And in Exodus 19, 5 through 6, Now if you will listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although all the earth is mine, the entire earth belongs to God, does it not? Although it all is mine, you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. Throughout the Old Testament, Jesus is talking to Israel and setting them apart as God's kingdom of priests. And what are priests? What is their role? Priests are intermediaries between God and man. God is setting aside a people who are representatives of his name to the world. Ambassadors to the world of the God that they represent. And in the Old Testament in particular, God is setting apart Israel through which redemption would eventually come. That's the promise he made in Genesis after the fall, where he tells Adam and Eve that a that your seed will crush the head of the serpent. And now the people of Israel are being set aside and set apart to be the conduit through which Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the seed of the woman who would then crush the serpent. And through these people, Jesus Christ would come. And when he came, if you read in the Gospels, Jesus comes and he starts to try to reconnect, try to bring to light all the things in the law that had been established, and to clarify, not to destroy the law, but to fulfill and clarify for God's people what God's purpose is, is in them and through them. Matter of fact, the times that we saw Jesus most enraged, if you recall the stories of him cleansing the temple. What did Jesus do when he came into the temple? He saw, he saw the change collectors, he, the, the change makers, he saw them coming and he was, they were cheating people, were they not? They had uneven scales and weights. Anybody know some folks that maybe you, you felt like you've been cheated before? It doesn't feel good, right? This is what they're doing in the temple. They've got some weights that aren't what they're supposed to be. And they're making money changing for foreigners. And they're not giving them a fair exchange. Jesus comes into the temple and he sees his people. And what is God's people supposed to be? A kingdom of priests. And what are priests? Priests are ambassadors to a watching world about their God. They're representatives of God. And what are God's kingdom of priests doing to the outside watching world who are coming to the temple to get changing money? They're cheating them. Is God a cheater? Is God a liar? Is God an abuser? Is that a testimony of the God who has redeemed them? No. And so you better believe Jesus was mad about that. What was his response in anger? He turned over those tables. You're not a kingdom of priests to a watching world like you're supposed to be. You are defiling the name of the God who you say you serve. And so Jesus shows us his heart towards that role, that responsibility of the people that have been set aside. But guys, it doesn't stop with with the Israelites, okay? Because, because Jesus came and saved a people, and he didn't just save Jews. The Jewish people were not the end. What did Jesus also bring into his people, to God's family? 
Well, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 29, Paul says, For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ like a garment. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Brothers and sisters, we are, may or may not have a background that's Jewish, but if we are in Christ, we are all heirs according to his promise. We are Abraham's seed. We are descendants. We are God's people called together for his glory. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, maybe you've heard this, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of, of God, not from works, so that no one can boast. It continues on in verse 10 and through the end of the chapter in 22, and saying this, we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised, by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without the Messiah, excluded from citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. And he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross and put the hostility to death by it. When the Messiah came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And for through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The whole building being put together by him grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. You also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Can Paul make it any more clear for what we are? Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are part of God's holy family. and You've been set apart as holy kingdom priests. 1 Peter 2, 9-10, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Why? There's always that purpose clause. Why? Why are we a holy nation? Why are we a royal priesthood? So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's a holy calling. Brothers and sisters, I, I don't want to try to relieve the weight of God's holiness on you. Because that's the foundation for how we live in community together. That we serve a holy God. That he has set us apart as his priests, his ambassadors to a watching world. A world who is ready and willing, more than willing, to reject Jesus Christ. You don't have to go far for that. You don't have to seek very hard to find people who are willing to reject the God of the Bible, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And you are a reflection of him to this watching world. You are priests if you are in Christ. We're set apart to be holy. 1 Peter 1, 15-16, God makes it very clear. As the one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in your contact, contact, conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And brothers and sisters, I, I feel, no, I don't feel. It is most apparent that we don't hold God's holiness in high enough regard. God is altogether other. He is separate. His holiness is unmarred, pure, right, good. It, it we, you, we throw around the term good very, very loosely, right? We're like the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, hey, good teacher, 
He would have just called any teacher good. So it's important when we see what Jesus' response is. Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Because good, to be truly good, is who God is. And He is holy and He is pure. A former pastor who's passed away, R.C. Sproul, wrote a book called The Holiness of God in which he covered from the topic of God's separate holiness from cover to cover. It's a good, encouraging read, a challenging, convicting read um, to dive deep into the ideas of how holy God is. But he has this quote that I'd like to read to you about God's holiness in comparison to our sin. Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin, of the most minute piccadillo? What are we saying to our Creator when we disobey Him at the slightest point? We are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction, and I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. God has called together people and called us to be holy. And on a regular basis, hear, the, hear me, hear me. James says, if you're not without, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar. But our sinful, rebellious heart on a regular basis is telling God, I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. And, and friends, that's the context and the foundation we lay for church discipline. Because because we have to understand and bear the weight of what is the consequence of sin. Yes, for all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death, is it not? On the regular, we see the testimony of Scripture is that the pathway towards sin, the pathway to disobedience, to iniquity, is one of death and destruction. And if we are a holy people of God set apart for His praise and glory, then do we not love one another well enough to try to curb us from that death and destruction? Or do we rather not believe or really, really believe in the gravity of God's holiness and the depravity of our own sin? The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? So church discipline, though, is for God's family, his people, because we're set apart to be holy. Believer, do you live like the set-apart people of God? Do you seek to serve him? Do you pursue holiness because our God is holy? The second, the second uh, observation here, the second element of, of church discipline that I see here in the text is that church discipline is not only for the people of God's family, but it's also for the purpose of bringing life. If we look here in this text where we see Jesus speaking, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, what does that next passage say? If he listens to you, you have won your brother. What's the aim of church discipline? What's the aim of the passage that Jesus lays out before us? To win your brother, to win your sister, to bring life. There's a possible sin lurking in the background. There's a potential a fault and offense. And Christ is saying, you go to them. If they hear you out and they come back and say, you're right, you've won your brother. This, as we say that sin is the pathway to death, church discipline in the life of the body of Christ is a pathway to life. We can also see more references throughout this entire surrounding passage of seeking life and restoration. See, this particular verse right here, chapter 18, is written as, it appears to be written as a single discourse. It's following their arrival in verse 24 in Capernaum, 
in chapter 17, verse 24. And prior to them actually leaving the area at the beginning of chapter 19 and heading across the Jordan. So this, this, whole, ver- this whole passage of chapter 18 seems to be one solid message. Something Christ is trying to communicate across to the disciples, to those who are listening. So if we look at that and we know, we can look at the surrounding stories, the messages, the parables that Christ is giving and try to get some context for what he's also trying to illustrate for us in how we restore our brother or sister in church discipline. And so we see in the verses leading up that in chapter 18, verses 1, we see disciples come to him and ask, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And immediately, Jesus starts talking about humility. Right? He says, it's, it's good to be humble. The greatest is humble, like a child. He also references in the verses leading up the destruction of destructiveness of sin, the problems and the importance of destroying lingering sin when he talks about in verses 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. That's pretty aggressive. That's like, that's like mob style right there. Right? That's what we hear with like concrete boots or whatever. You know, they cement block boots. They tie them up and drop them down. He's literally saying it's, they'd be way better off if they just had a millstone wrapped around their neck and thrown in the ocean than if they make one of my, these little innocent children stumble. That's how, how grave sin is, how destructive it is. And we also see in the end of that passage, he also says that if your hand or your foot, in verse 8, causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter into life um, as lame or maimed than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. Now that's, I am not encouraging you to cut off any appendages. Okay? This is an illustration, this is an analogy. Jesus is saying it's better for you to cut off whatever is causing you to fall away in sin. There have been people in church history that have cut off arms and legs just because they read the scripture and said, this hand is causing me to sin, I'm cutting it off. But they're not wrong about how serious sin is. And that's this tale that Jesus is telling here leading up to this. But he also begins to tell us the importance, not only the, the, the devastation of sin, he also begins to talk about how we are going to rescue. Look at verse, uh, verses 10 through 14. He's talking about the parable of the lost sheep. Page is turning. I've got you guys going all over the place. Because he's telling them sin is bad, sin is terrible, cut off sin, get rid of it, it's destructive, but go after the lost sheep. How many of you if someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the 99 who did not go astray. In that same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones would perish. So what's the heart of God in church discipline? That not one would perish. Restoration. Actually, in my Bible, the heading for this section is restoring a brother. Restoring. Not, not sending out, not excommunicating in a way that, that is destructive to them, not vindictive, not, not abusing power. It's rather restoring a brother. So, so church discipline is not only just for the family of God. Church discipline is for the purpose of of actually bringing life to the brother, to restore them, to bring them back into the fold, to bring them life. And another element of church discipline, the third element, church discipline should be done with a posture of love, grace, and humility. That's that's all here too. He tells the disciples, you need to be humble like a child. In verse 4, in verse 22, after he gives the restoring a brother message, Peter's first request or question is, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother, though? Anybody else can relate to that? Jesus tells you, listen, you need to seek your brother, seek restoration, you need to restore him back into the family, 
And then your first thought is, but how many times do I need to do that? And Jesus takes the question where Peter actually gives. Peter's trying to, I'm sorry, this is somewhat of a, it's not on his side, but it's just something to note. Peter even tries to be really, really holy because he gives a number. Jesus, how many times should I forgive a brother? I mean, I'm good enough, I will do seven. How about seven times? I mean, listen, who else would forgive somebody seven times? That's a lot, right? Jesus says that's not enough. Jesus actually says, I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. Any mathematicians in here? I'll just give you a hint. He was not actually telling you just to do 490 times. How many people are going to keep track of 490 times? If you keep that tight of an account, we've got to talk about your heart. All right? If you've got a book of forgiveness, right? Um, listen, I've got to tell you something. I've done 399. You're getting really close. No, no, no. What Jesus is saying, listen, don't, you can't keep count. He is essentially extending limitless forgiveness. And isn't that so right coming from our Savior who has been offended by so much sin yet has forgiven so greatly? There's more grace in the cross of Christ than there is sin in us. And our Savior is only asking us to extend that same grace to our brothers and sisters. They extend that same forgiveness. And then as if he's not being clear enough in how much forgiveness, how much grace, how much love, how much humility we should have, he then goes on to the parable of the unforgiving servant. Where a servant comes to a master, the king, and he owes him an astronomical amount of money in that day. He owes him more money than he could ever come up with. And the king is turning, as is the practice at that time, to throw him in prison or to sell him off as a slave with his family in order to try to recoup the cost. And he would work until it was all paid off. That, that was their version of credit cards. Today, we're just a slave to the credit card company. Right? Then, they were just sold into slavery to work off their debt. The king, ready to sell him off, has a servant in front of him begging and pleading and saying, please, 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 please forgive me. And the king finds compassion and he forgives him his loan. He doesn't only say, nah, that's cool, I'll give you more time to pay me off. He says, it says in the text, he forgives the loan. Now, you and I, being forgiven a debt, if someone comes to me and I have a huge debt to be paid and they say, you know what, forget about it. You're good. You don't owe me anything. I feel pretty good about that. As should this servant feel really good about it. First thing he does is he turns around and he goes to another servant that owes him far less money. I mean, think about like, you know, he didn't pay for the bill last week. And he, he owes you the rest of that money for the debt. He, he, he didn't pay for his part of the meal you guys went out to. Way less. In his response, he tells him, pay me now. And the fellow servant fell down and begged and begged and said, no, no, be patient with me. I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back. The servant, who was just forgiven so much, refused to show grace. Instead, he threw him into prison so that he could pay off what he owed to him. And when the king found out about that, he took the unforgiving servant. The master took him, threw him in prison, had him tortured, had him uh, imprisoned until he could pay off everything that he owed. Why? Because, because that, that servant did not really understand and appreciate the amazing wealth of grace he had already been shown. Because he failed to turn and show that to his brother who needed far less grace from him. So what's that mean for us as a church? Well, as a church, when we look at a brother and sisters in sin, their offense is far less against us and is far greater against the king of the universe, the creator of all things, the sustainer, the one who sent his son to die on the cross. That, that cross was where that sin was paid for, the cross of Christ. And if our God can take his son and pay the price in his blood for our sin and say, it's finished, you're forgiven, who are you and I to hold anything against one another? 
remember, you hold something against one another. It is as if saying, yes, Jesus cross was great and sufficient for everything except for that. It wasn't enough for that. I need more. Do you hear that? Do you see the arrogance of that? The evil in that. So, so Christ says in this passage throughout Scripture, show grace, show humility, be forgiving. Be loving. That is the context for church discipline. It's the way we come to one another. It's the way we love each other well in the church. And so church discipline should be done in a way that is kind and loving. It's within the family of God. It is exercised in a way that brings life. But church discipline should also be done by the prescription of God's word. This is kind of a mashup. This point is, I took two and put them together because I think it needed to be. By the prescription of God's word, with the practice of godly discernment. Godly discernment. Here's what I mean by that. It's kind of a mashup because Jesus outlines in this passage the principles of approaching a brother or sister in sin, and we should consider how our Savior wants us to walk through this. It's important. It's like rules of the road. It's the real basic structure of, this is the way I want you to think about how you go to restore a brother in sin. But the evidence of Scripture is that navigating church discipline is not always hard and fast by Christ's steps here. Don't think, how many steps does Jesus give me? All right, that's how many steps we're going to do. Okay? All right? The, the, the evidence of Scripture, and I'm going to show you in some other passages, <clears throat> excuse me, is that there are several passages that talk about where church discipline is addressed, and the application actually looks a little bit different than this passage. And it's for good reason. It's for a very, very, very good reason, and I think you agree with me. The Christian life is messy. Life is messy. If ever, anybody here has a super really clean, neat, buttoned-up life, I'm really concerned about you because you're hiding a lot of stuff. Life's just messy. That's how, we, that's how we navigate this. And specifically for the Christian, it's a battle. It's a battle. There's a reason at the end of Ephesians, Paul is talking about how you live the Christian life. Read the passages again. He's talking about how you live the Christian life. And it was nothing over the top. Like, I mean, it was radical, but, but the, the areas he's talking about is nothing, like, big. It's how you relate to your wife. It's how you relate at work. It's how you relate with, with, um, with family and how you live in unity as a church. It's all those things. And then you know how he capstones it, how he bookends that chapter? Put on the armor, because it's going to be tough. You think just going to, to be holy at home and be obedient to Christ and live in a and a marriage that honors God is going to be easy, yeah, good luck. Right, honey? She's got to wear her armor a lot more than I do. It's hard for me. Can you imagine living with me? Okay. It's, it's, it's a battle. And so Christian life is a battle. Church discipline is not hard and fast by this. And so we have to use some godly discernment as we apply these principles laid out by Jesus. Remember, remember that we talked about this in terms of even athletic achievement. You train and you practice and you work hard, Right? For how things should be, but then you get into the field of play, you get into the activities, you get into the game, and you have to learn and use discernment. Navy SEALs, um, military elites, they all train and they prepare hard before they ever see combat. Well, when their boots are on the battlefield, they have to make some important decisions in the moment on how they apply their training. Do they not? It doesn't look all neat and put together like the textbooks write up. The battlefield of the Christian life is even more critical to navigate well and in wisdom. 21st century philosopher Mike Tyson is famously quoted as saying, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And truth is, may have been a flash of wisdom, but, but, but there's truth in that, that message that we have to put together the plan well ahead of time. So, Because when we get hit and we get knocked around and we get in the tough, in the foxholes, if you will, fighting the battle of the Christian life alongside our brothers and sisters, we have to be prepared for anything. And so we look at what God has laid out, what Christ has laid out in here, and we're following closely after Jesus. You're going to get punched in the spiritual mouth. 
Let's prepare well so that we can navigate church discipline with care and wisdom. So what's the first thing that Jesus tells us? Well, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. So what's the first thing he wants you to do? Does he want you to go post it on Facebook? Does he want you to go talk to your mother-in-law about it? Does, it? does he want you to go share with your close, six closest friends and start to make a game plan? He says go privately approaching your brother and sister one-on-one. Why? Why is that? Why? Have you ever seen a conflict between two people get any better when, it's, when, it, when you bring in a whole lot of people? Does it, does it tend to improve quickly that way? It typically goes the wrong direction. Everybody's got an opinion, and everybody's got a viewpoint, and everybody's picking sides. And Jesus is saying the most important thing we can do is care for this brother and sister, because here's the truth, here's the truth. How many of you have ever been on this side of it? You offended somebody and you had no idea. Have you ever offended anyone and had no idea that you did that? Well, the right thing to do is for that person to come to you just like Jesus asked, and just say, hey, by the way, I don't know if you meant anything by this. But it really hurt me when you said this to me. Or I, I thought this was how we were going to handle this situation, and yet you did, did this. And I will promise you, nine times out of ten, most of the time, I might go through random statistics out there, a lot of the time, you're going to find out the person didn't know or going to try to make things right immediately. And this is why I say largely church discipline happens really informally. It's just, it's just people loving each other and living life together. And sometimes it's much more serious than that. Sometimes it could be a concern over their marriage. Maybe you have been in a situation where you've seen someone you care for, a husband and wife, that it's just... From the outside, things don't look like they're going well for them. And within the body of believers, what we know is that the marriage is a place where God is glorified in the unity of a man and a woman. That we are putting the gospel on display. And if there's danger in that relationship, if God is going, if Satan is going to attack a place in the marriage, it's going to, be, it's going to happen. It's going to happen in marriage. You're going to see Satan attacking. You're going to see the enemy come in, and we can come alongside one another and make, make it known to them in a loving and caring way with a posture of grace and humility. And so we would come to them one-on-one and say, hey, brother, something doesn't seem right here. And then Jesus tells us, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. Again, bringing life. That's our aim, right? That's our goal. That's our goal. Verse 16, but if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. This is kind of Jesus' second step. What's he, what's he escalating to? Okay, you came to the brother, they got, hey, what is wrong with you? I didn't do anything wrong, get over it. Now, now we got a problem. We're getting a little bit of attention between two people within the church, so go get two, one, two or three others. We want to have... People to join alongside us. Not folks who are just going to take your side. Not people who, it doesn't say you have to go get someone who's a minister or a leader. This is simply going within the assembly to two or three people who love and care for you and this person the same way that you love this person and bring some accountability to bear. Just says, hey, what's up? Justin said he came and talked to you about this and you, you really were didn't care. You were unrepentant. You were angry at him. What, what's the problem? And, and there's several things that happen with that. First, Jesus is appealing to the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 19 through 15. We read, one witness cannot establish any wrongdoing or sin against a person, whatever that person has done. A fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So what happens is if you really think something's wrong, those two or three people can come and talk and bear witness to what you're saying. That yes, this person is in sin, and there's a problem here to help bring clarity, but also bring accountability. Because what we have, when we're, if we're in a position of humility, we have to acknowledge the fact that we might be wrong. Is it possible that we come to someone and we're offended or we think they're in sin and we're actually wrong about it? You better believe it. 
And if we're humble about it, we have these two others, these two or three others that Jesus talks about to help bring some accountability and to bring some witness to what's happening. So he goes on. He said, if he doesn't, in verse 17, pay attention to them, tell the church. Now it's escalating. Jesus is saying that at this point, and this is only, I believe, the second time in this context, uh, the word ecclesia, which means assembly. It's the idea of people gathering together for something. He's simply talking about bring it to the whole group, the gathering the other believers, bring it to other people. Why? Because we love this person too much to not talk to them about the sin that we see in their life. And it's clearly, it's clear that they're living unrepentantly. It's clear at this point we have witnesses who are also speaking to that truth, and we're having the assembly come together to say, we don't know what we need to do. We want life for this person. They're going down a road of destruction, and we want to see good for them. And guys, listen, this, this one, two, three, four steps, again, it is very important to use discernment. Because it might be one step, one step, one step, one step. You know what? We're just not getting anywhere. I'm bringing in some other folks with me. Because we have to be patient with each other and kind and gracious. Because in the end, the goal is life and restoration. But we also acknowledge the fact, if we're in the body of believers, that we're all with sin in our life. We have sin that we need to take care of, that we need to run away from, that we need to destroy, we need to kill. And if someone is unwilling to acknowledge a fault, or unwilling to be repentant, that's a very serious issue within the body. It's not good for them, and it's not good for the church. And so Jesus says, bring it to the assembly. Bring it to the church. And if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, finally treat them as an unbeliever. Treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Now, does that mean the church shuns that person? No. Do you shun unbelievers? I hope not. I hope you don't. Do you just entirely only associate with your church filled of um, uh, church filled with believers? We'll have other things to talk about. Jesus is rather saying, just acknowledge what seems to be apparent by how they're behaving. Does that make sense? See, here's the deal. You and I, we don't determine anybody's salvation. Can we get that on the table? We can't. We don't. Never will. Only God knows. And only by the time we get to eternity, we will... We, we, <laughs> Will we really see those who are saved in the end? Paul refers to it on the regular as those who persevere to the end. Because we can deceive one another. I mean, the really, really good kid in Sunday school, watch out for him. Okay? He just knows how to play the system. I was that kid. And so the truth is we have no way of being able to... to determine someone's salvation. But what we can do as a church and a body of believers is either affirm what we see in someone's life as being Christ working in them or do them the loving thing of saying, brother or sister, giving no evidence of Christ's salvation in you. You're heading for death and destruction. Please, please turn and come back to the cross. See the difference there? You're not shunning someone. You're not hating someone. You are hopefully, like with all other believers you know, you know, saying, please come to life. Please come to the cross. Please come to Jesus. Look to him. And Jesus says, that person that you're now trying to restore is giving no evidence of saving faith. And so you would be unloving to let them think they are or let them just live that way. And so treat them as a Gentile and a task collector. Set them apart from the group and say, God, we love you. Please come. Please learn. Grow together. Read the Bible. But I just want you to know we need you to repent and come to Jesus because we don't think you're saved. We don't think you actually know him because you're not living like you do. Now, there are other places in Scripture where we see these steps. 
applied a little differently. See, most of the time we talk about this being kind of informal, and sometimes it escalates. And, and when you're loving one another enough to keep short accounts and to maintain the unity of faith, that's discipline on a daily basis. And it's a beautiful thing. You're loving one another enough to keep short accounts and to maintain that faith, and a majority of the time, the, the church will continue to grow healthy. But there are a couple of cases, like in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul escalates very, very quickly. He actually talks about someone who is sexually immoral. He says it's reported there's someone sexually immoral among you in a way that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. That means this person was someone that even the Gentiles would be offended by. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmom essentially, and you are arrogant. You're not saying anything about it. It's actually speculated this person might have been someone of influence. So they just were kind of, uh, we don't want to rock the boat. And, G and Paul escalates quickly. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I pronounce judgment on the one who's been doing this. When you're assembled in the name of our Lord, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Again, what's the goal? His spirit would be saved. But Paul's not talking about steps, is he? Paul says, someone's arrogant, someone's sinning, someone's doing something obscene, get them out of your church assembly. There's a difference of the case, right? The context, the situation. This is where I'm talking about discernment. Paul doesn't say, go to them and talk to them. They've had a chance. It is public. There's a difference in the two. There's a private sin, a personal matter, and there's something very public, offense. There's someone who may or may not know they're in sin, and then there's someone who, they are just arrogant about it. That's different, right? You can't have that stain on Christ's church. You can't have that stain on Christ's church. Do you still love that person that, you, that, that, Paul's, that Paul's referring to? Yes. And you love them enough to say, you are showing no signs of repentance and cannot be a part of the assembly. Live under the word of God and hear his scripture, but you're not a believer. Please repent and come back to him. So church discipline is by the prescription we see in scripture. Church discipline is loving and kind, gracious and humble. It's to bring life. And finally, it's for the praise of God's glory. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, we read in there earlier, it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. The purpose given is that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 